Apple presents Meet the Author. Please welcome tonight's guests, co-authors of The Soundtrack of My Life, available now in the iBook store, Anthony DeCurtis and Clive Davis. Here we are again, and we're in New York, and you know, you're a Brooklyn boy. Brooklyn is absolutely in the house. And uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, growing up in Brooklyn and maybe some of the lessons that you learned there that uh, were useful to you as your uh, you know, career took shape. Well, I certainly am indebted to Brooklyn. And the first things I think about are the melting pot neighborhoods. The fact that although when I grew up it was probably predominantly Jewish, but there were enough Italian, Irish, working class people, those were my friends after school. Those were those whom I played punch ball or stick ball or touch football with. And uh, the education that I got right from the beginning with the elementary schools, PS 161 is where I went. Erasmus Hall High School was the high school. And I can't overemphasize it too much because it was that education and the work ethic um, that to me, all through my life, I've given that credit. It was the genesis, it was the foundation, it was the reason why in more recent years, I was in making a decision how I give back, fortunate enough to give back, that I've established the school in my name at Tisch of NYU for them to study, for students, which I never had the opportunity to study, contemporary music uh, in all its forms, not just the creative form, but to learn what it means to pledge one's life to a career uh, in music. And so my parents passed away when I was 18, independent of each other. And I had the munificent sum from life insurance of $4,000 to face college and eventually, when you make a decision, how do you rise above, rise above the station of your parents? Um, they were all working class. Their siblings, kids of their siblings, were none of whom had ever gone to college. And so it was the scholarship that I got to NYU. It was the scholarship that I got to Harvard Law School, you know, that has never left me and that is the basis for providing this institute at Tisch. And I'll just make additional points as I think of it because so often, the school, if there were courses in music, if there were um, programs, there were always either jazz or classical music, certainly wonderful forms of music, but not the influence that contemporary music has had on the cultures throughout the world. And so every time I saw a school for film at NYU or USC, I said, you know, there's a whole different attitude towards the record business, towards contemporary music, something that you should be far more proud of. And I'm just tying together both my youth as well as my commitment. Um, it is now the most applied to division of Tisch at NYU on a ratio basis. So I think we're doing some good there. Well, now, Clive, uh, from that upbringing, you know, you just mentioned Harvard Law School. You know, you started out as a lawyer. You had no particular aspirations to enter the music industry, but through a series of kind of amazing uh, events, you ended up running Columbia Records, and Columbia needed some help. You know, Columbia was kind of lagging behind some other labels uh, in the mid-60s, uh, where rock and roll was concerned, just as rock and roll was becoming, you know, hugely important. And so in uh, 1967, as the president of Columbia Records, you found yourself at the Monterey Pop Festival. And I wonder if you could describe what that experience was like. 
Well, as I wrote it down book, um, getting into records was a totally lucky break. I've got to mention that, because life is affected by luck. Hard work is key, preparedness is key, but I'm, the idea of going to a law firm who by luck one of their clients was Columbia Records, I mean, I never ever would have thought of being a music, would have thought of music as a career. That was what we call a lucky break. And then after being counsel for five years, um, I was offered the opportunity by a man named Harvey Shine, and I understand Harvey's widow was here tonight, Joy Shine. Joy, are you here? Someone? There you are. Well, I thank her husband because if it weren't for Harvey Shine, I never would have become general counsel to Columbia Records. And um, Harvey was general counsel, was moving up to take over the international operations of Columbia Records. And I went there never thinking that music would become my passion and that it would open up life and doors to me never to be thought of. And after five years, there was a reorganization of the company. Both our mentors, Goddard Lieberson, was becoming a group president. And it's not that he knew that I had ears, or I knew that I might have ears, because he first offered me the being the head of the musical instrument companies <clears throat> that we had bought on the grounds of Synergy. And over the period of time, we bought Steinway pianos and Leslie speakers and Fender guitars. And I didn't want to take it because it would mean moving to LA. Again, Fortune intervened. A man named Norman Adler was Goddard's executive vice president. He wanted to move to La Jolla. So Goddard calls me and he said, listen, I talked to you about being head of the musical instrument division. Norman Adler would like that. So you'll be head of Columbia Records. And that's literally what happened. And I just was stunned. You know, you look, you observe, you don't come in as any panacea, any answer. There were companies steeped in middle-of-the-road music with Streisand and Andy Williams and Percy Faith and Tony Bennett. They had every key original cast album because of Goddard. My Fair Lady, Camelot, West Side Story, Sound of Music. But they were not into the rock and roll that was developing. They were not, they had Bob Dylan who was a huge, already budding influence, but not a seller of records. His songs, The Birds and um, others were really, Peter, Paul and Mary were singing. So for a year I just watched, I made one deal, and that was for old records, Lou Adler, preeminent producer, Johnny Rivers, Mama, Mamas and the Papas, and we had one record out. That was the first record. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. Well, that was the theme song for the Monterey Pop Festival, the first festival of its kind. And I went there, and obviously my life changed totally from that. There was a social, a cultural, musical revolution going on. We didn't know about it in New York. We hadn't heard about it. I had no clue that new artists would be playing during the day. I was there to see Simon and Garfunkel and the Mamas and Papas. And my life changed when I saw Big Brother and the Holding Company. Janis Joplin was not even billed at that time. And she came strutting on stage, vibrating, singing like probably no one since.
compelling, vibrating, electrifying. And after seeing a group called the Electric Flag with horns, Mike Bloomfield on guitar, Buddy Miles on drums, it, I knew if the word epiphany has any meaning today, that was my epiphany. I had to make my move. I learned before that that if you're an A&R and you're recording Percy Faith or Vicky Carr or Tony Bennett, as talented as those artists are, you're not going to care nor be expert in any other kind of music. You should, you could have the talent, but it's a field of specialty. And you don't find people today in hip hop up to now going in necessarily and recording Radiohead or Mumford and Sons. So I determined that I would go after and sign Big Brother and the Holding Company featuring Janis Joplin. And I did. We bought a contract from Mainstream Records. Cost us, and there was a lot of money in those days, $200,000. Albert Grossman had become their manager by then. Half of it was shared by Janis and the group. Half of it we paid. And that began our first foray into rock and what I came up with the term, the sound of rock that would be heard around the world. Now, obviously, you know, Janis Joplin became a star. You began to um, kind of exercise, you know, some of your own uh, judiciousness. You know, you, you discussed with her uh, an edit for Peace of My Heart that you know, enabled that song to get on the radio and become a big hit. Uh, there was a development there and a beginning of your, that, that kind of sense of your own uh, ability to recognize a hit and recognize, you know, important artists, you know, people who would, you know, become major stars. And from there, you know, you went on, obviously, under your ages, you know, to sign Bruce Springsteen, to sign Billy Joel, to sign Aerosmith. Uh, just to name a few, Santana, the first time around, and then later on, the second time around. Um, you know, in 1973, you began Arista Records, and you launched it. It was your own company built from, you know, the ground up. And one of the artists that you began working with and signed was Barry Manilow, and you began that process of song selection. And that's something that you really became known for, and you know, to this day is something that you're known for. And I wonder if you could describe that process of working with him and deciding that that role of artist and repertoire, finding an artist and finding the material for them was something that was really gonna be you know, one of your fortes. Okay, I'll start by just filling in one or two of the spaces. So the artists that I signed at Columbia are almost all self-contained. A lot has been written since Whitney and Barry Manilow and other artists about my predilection. In those days, they were all self-contained artists, they, most of whom, I'm happy to say, got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's the reason I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not only being aware of those cutting edge, there was Chicago, there was Blood, Sweat and Tears, that first Blood, Sweat and Tears album with Al Cooper and Steve Katz of the Blues Project was so formative and, and cutting edge. Santana with its fusion of Latin and African and rock and blues was so um, cutting edge. So, and obviously distinguishing Springsteen from Dylan, there's a whole chapter in the book uh, about a number of these uh, artists, as well as becoming very close friends with Paul Simon um, and navigating the institution of Simon and Garfunkel into the solo career of Paul Simon with anecdotes and parables, one involving John Lennon along the way. When it got to Arista, 
towards the end of 74, just to be exact, um, I wanted an instant major. I wanted a company. This was Columbia Pictures putting up all the money for it. But what had happened at Columbia, it was progressive music, the Ma Vishnu Orchestra, Weather Report, following Miles Davis, it was R&B music, which comes first, the A&R, the promotion. Not in tre technical trade terms, but how do you get into certain forms of music? Part of an executive strength is knowing his weakness. I couldn't do it. So I turned to Kenny Gamble, I turned to Leon Hopp. We formed Philadelphia International Records. It led to Me and Mrs. Jones by Billy Paul. It led to Teddy Pendergrass. It led to the OJs and Backstabber. So with that backdrop, and with, Arist with Columbia as a blueprint for what I really wanted Arista to be, it was rock, it was the early stages of R&B leading to my own signing of Earth, Wind & Fire, and it, it, it was progressive music. So that carried over to Arista. How do you form a new company from scratch? What do you look to? How do you attract what executives? And there, right from the beginning, the first R&B rapper, and I'm so proud of it, was the signing of Gil Scott Aaron, and a major influence, a major rap star. That was before what we were going to get into later with Bad Boy or the Face. And with rock, sure, we were went right into it. Great stories about how we attracted the Grateful Dead and why I believe the Kinks could come back and the discovery of that great Renaissance special, special artist, Patti Smith, and attracted Lou Reed, attracted Graham Parker, had stiff records with the Enduri. So we were cutting edge. We did have major important artists continuing the rock tradition. But what Anthony is alluding to is that the R and A and R, meaning repertoire from A and R, and I was loving what was doing. There was no way when I saw Harvey that either of us knew that my ear, I found I had a natural gift for music. Never would have found it, explored it, loved it. And now was making moves, saying repertoire for artists that don't write. If they're entertainers, there's nothing wrong with it. And that started the procedure where the first record for Arista, I listened to Barry Manilow's music. He had not yet broken. He had one album out there. And I know I hesitate. You catch hesitation because... I got this letter, and this is not planned. I really wanted Anthony to share it, him being so invaluable in the collaboration of this book, you know, where Barry just wrote me this three-page letter of what the book meant to him and how amazed he was going through the errors, E-R-A-S, with me, and where he says... I think the difference between so many songwriters who at various times, like Melissa Manchester, Taylor Dane, others who fought for their own material, and myself, is that I always saw the wisdom in what you were offering me after Mandy. After Mandy went to number one, he gave me two spots on each album, and I had to make those two spots count. And I and my A&R staff did every song we gave him, trying to get the feeling again. Looks like we made it. I write the songs. Can't smile without you. Um, ready to take a chance. I could go on. He wrote, even now, this one's for you, Copacabana. He eventually got in, I say with pride, the Songwriters Hall of Fame. But he knew, and I'll just, in his own words, he says, my job was always to figure out what you were hearing 
in those amateur de demos you believed in. The piano demo of Can Small Without You sounded like two children plunking out a song. But you believed in it so much, I just couldn't ignore your commitment to it. If you remember, it took three albums for me to finally figure out what you were hearing. I remember playing the song over and over again on my piano, trying to crawl inside your head, because I didn't read music and I couldn't talk in musical terms. The aha moment for me and that song was when I realized that it was a vaudeville song. It was an epiphany for me. And when I found the vaudeville in Can't Smile Without You, I knew exactly how to arrange and produce the song. It's the same thing with I Write the Songs. I knew it would get me in trouble, and it did. But I just couldn't ignore your passion for it. And when I found the anthem in that song, I knew exactly how to arrange and produce it. And it's the stories of the demos that you submitted to me and my struggle to find myself in those songs. That was the most challenging part of our relationship. But again, unlike some of your singer-songwriters, I always saw the wisdom in your choices. And it was my job to figure out how to find myself in these songs that I had not written. And as years went by, I found the gratitude in what you had done for me. And that gratitude has grown and grown. And then he writes some beautiful things uh, to end it. I say that because that, when we got far behind with Manilow, far behind meaning I had songs for the next three years on hold, I came up with this song that I knew was a hit, but I had to wait four years. And I said, you know, this is stupid. I have to find another artist to record this song. It can't be a male, it would be a threatened competition. And that's when I signed Dion Warwick. And that's when we recorded with Gary producing I'll Never Love This Way Again, and then Deja Vu, and then Heartbreaker, and then that's what Friends of Four. And it extended the career of this iconic artist for another 15 years, showing, and that's what attracted Aretha Franklin. And she was missing her creative partner in Jerry Wexler after the incredible Atlantic years that, you know, with respect, natural woman, chain of fools. I always knew when I was dealing with Aretha, that's history to this day, never thinking that I would come up, radio had changed with respect or chain of fools, but her peers were no longer having hits. And to come up with hits for her, to come up with, I knew you were waiting for me, and sisters are doing it for themselves, and free way of love, and who's who and who, and jump to it. I could go on and on so that her career, justifiably, is the greatest vocalist of all time, says even the most recent Rolling Stone magazine poll. You know, that's been a big thrill. Discovery of new artists, but also extending selectively careers of iconic artists way beyond where one thought it should go or deservedly should expand to. And that, of course, led me to Whitney Houston. The careers of Dion, the career of Aretha, and then being told by Jerry Griffith in my A&R staff, I should go to see Sissy Houston's daughter. And then that led, you know, to my being stunned by this incredible vocal talent that after we signed, I brought her on the Merv Griffin show and said, if there's going to be an artist for the next generation that has the lyric depth and stunning beauty of Lena Horne with the potential for the fiery gospel of Aretha Franklin, it will be... Whitney Houston. You know, Whitney, obviously, um, you know, may well be the artist with whom you're most identified, you know, partly because, you know, you found her when she was still a teenager. I mean, the records that you made, you know, the first two albums, each selling over 20 million copies, 
know, the Bodyguard soundtrack, uh, you know, one of the best-selling albums of all time, and a, you know, a hugely successful movie. But you know, that trajectory that Whitney went on from this tremendous success and kind of, you know, being regarded as you know, kind of America's darling and almost too squeaky clean to you know becoming a, a you know a tabloid headline and and suffering a you know a terrible decline i wonder if you could just talk about going on that journey with her and of course you know the the terrible day uh when you heard the news that that she had died well first of all it was an it was an incredible journey this was not a case of an artist that was signed in my administration. This was someone that from the very beginning asked for and received from my corporate parent a key man clause that said if I ever left the company, she would have the right to leave. So my A&R staff and I, that's what we did, found great songs. And she and I would meet, we'd go over the material after I had maybe seen several hundred songs. It took two years to come up with the material for the first Whitney Houston album. But between that, those first two albums, which broke, can you imagine it? Adele just now selling 21 million, will now picture the next album selling 23 million. That's what Whitney did. You know, seven number ones in a, consecutively in a row. And her energy was tireless. People either don't remember or they don't talk about it because she didn't break just in this country. When you break in this country that big, you've got to visit top 40 stations. You've got to visit R&B stations and rhythm stations and so many different formats. She had to do that in every country, in the UK, in every country, in Europe, in, in Asia, in Africa. She broke everywhere, prodigious with her work ethic, and did it over each of the first two albums. You know, she came to me, and I tell the story in the book, which I'm happy to say yesterday entered the bestseller New York Times chart at number two. So thank you. So we're very excited about that and the reviews, which, you know, have really candidly overwhelmed us. Um, that it be a book about contemporary music with anecdotes and inside stories and background that's riveting. It's not just, it's not a trade book by any means. And, um, you know, it told from the heart, honestly, from beginning to end, certainly my life. And um, so that story, you know, where her accomplishments, every time I would pass her, I would say, are you pinching yourself? This is not de rigueur. This is so unusual, so unprecedented seven consecutive number one. She knew it. And she would come to me and she'd say, you know, after the, all these hits, the rock critics, they don't like hits. And they're thinking I'm the pop princess. And my competitors, Mar um, my competitors, Madonna, Janet Jackson, they're co-writing. Should I write? In that position, you never say no. You say, if you could write, my ears are open. I get no share, participation, equity, money, return for these songs that we're finding for you. And if you could write as strong a song as The Greatest Love of All, saving all my love for you, and I went through various of the titles, great. But just know that there's a tradition begun with Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and Barbara Streisand and Aretha Franklin and Frank Sinatra and Sarah Vaughan. They didn't write. They were vocal geniuses. And you come from that tradition. So more importantly, 
you've got to have respect for the material coming in from great professional songwriters, and you pay homage to them the way that Sinatra did to Jimmy Van Heusen or Sammy Kahn, and be grateful, because without great songs, talent could just exist in the abstract. She never brought that subject up again. We did, and the book goes into becoming aware after Bodyguard, and it talks at length about Bodyguard and how the movie was changed to make a musical of her material, and includes letters that I wrote to Kevin Costner and the director to change it, and they did. We all benefited from it. And then Waiting to Exhale, how that developed around the great writing of Babyface, making a statement, Preach's wife. And then it was clear that she had a problem. It was clear that even for me, where she had always shown up everywhere, she was not vocally what Whitney should be. And so the book does talk about my meeting with her personally, pointing out the lethal nature of drugs. Bobby was in jail at the time. He had agreed to go into rehab if she would agree. She wasn't ready. If anybody on staff or her family brought the subject up, she would go out of the room. She would never do that with me. She just said, it's not as serious as you think. It became serious to me, totally, when I saw at the Michael Jackson concert at Madison Square Garden in the year 2001, where she was a skeleton. And the book contains a letter that I wrote to her, that here you've trusted me with everything since you're 19, every song, and we've done it together. Have faith. You're never going to beat this. You're involved in a serious struggle. And you learn, regretfully, that logic, a loving relationship, does not enough. The subject has got to sink to that level that he or she wants to deal with it at that time. And I did, just going fast forward, I did believe that when she met with Oprah, she was dealing with that problem. She did go into rehab. She did deal with it. We did do the Outlook to You album and everything thereafter. I just dealt with the impact of her voice because of heavy cigarette smoking that admittedly she found impossible to do more than cut back. And reached the point that when she did tour, a tour that I was totally against, sometimes I read that we made money. My company, I had no economic interest in her touring. I never wanted her to tour until she was the Whitney of old. And, you know, I dealt with it from the point of view of cigarette smoking and took the position, we're not going to make another album until your voice comes back. And Aretha assured me, who had been a cigarette smoker, her voice came back once she cut it out. And what's sad, we have limited time to go into detail, there's no reticence on my part, is that three days before her death, she spent the whole afternoon with me. And she said, you know, I am totally committed to giving up cigarette smoking, totally, not to cut back, cut it out. I'm swimming every day. I'm so ready, I love music so much, I want to get back. And she committed herself to begin an album. We were in February, that following August. 
Um, so obviously I go into the book how shattering it was to learn the day of my Grammy party, which is tr always the night before the Grammys, that she had passed away, tragically. She never knew she was flirting with death, no way. Um, and we decided to go on. You might have read there was a few people that became vocal as to why we had the evening we did. We had the evening we did because that was the night of music that was Whitney's favorite night of the year. She was there as a civilian, not to perform, only because every year she reveled in the performances. And set to perform that night was Tony Bennett with Diana Krall, was Diana Ross and Jamie Foxx and the Kinks with Elvis Costello and Jackson Brown. I had brought my old friend Ray Davies in and Alicia Keys, all these artists. So the fact that there were a few, if you didn't want to come, you didn't come. But as Puffy said, and I was called Puffy because I financed Bad Boy and that's how I met him, so I haven't, I haven't gone along with his name changes. But, <laughs> but he said, you know, we have to honor her. She loved music and that's what we did. From the beginning of the evening throughout, every performer expressed his or her debt and love for Whitney, any more than the Grammys would have been canceled the next night. You do that in tribute to Whitney, and that's why we continue. Well, now um, we'd like to open up the floor to your own questions. Uh... Hi, Clive. My name is Nick. Uh, revere your work. Uh, curious question. The, your luminary in the business, as well as Geffen, Amat, and, and the like, where do you see music going? Recorded music is obviously, over the last 10 years, in terms of you know, recorded music and money attributed to it, it's half the business it was, for a lot of reasons, shared you know, file serve and all that. And there's very few people like you, in my opinion, left. And I was a musician from the time I was 10 years old. You know, you found a lot of people. Geffen found a lot of people. Ahmad found a lot of people. And there's a lot of people out there, in my opinion, aren't being found unless you're one of these TV shows. Where do you see the future of music going, these musicians here, given the way the music business has changed so radically as a business model? There's no question that as an industry, we were set back and hurt when we were very late to on the digital revolution, that we did not provide a legal alternative to adopt the digital revolution that was going on. And so that the consumer, unfortunately, got used to either piracy or the music should be free, an affront to everybody and to the creativity of everyone involved, and certainly antithetical to everything that we learned about the American system. So we've spent a number of years now through unfortunate litigation trying to say, do what's legal. I have this to say. Sometimes when there's technical advances, technological advances, it obsoletes a, quote, product. Music is not a product, but for the purpose of this analogy, there's no question music is not obsolete. We're not dealing with something that's no longer. It's as much a part of the culture, it's as much a part of people's lives needed um, as ever. So we're not dealing with something that's not needed. Part of the problem with the education against piracy has also been a little, an, an homogenization at the radio level, the decreasing impact over a few years of rock stations. So you wonder where is your next Bruce Springsteen? Where is your next 
Bob Dylan, the two poet laureates that American music have given uh, uh, to us. And the predominance of dance music, or as they say, EDM, where you want to buy the record, but you're not curious about the artist, so you'll buy it as a single. So we have a situation today that singles, we have singles that sell, if they're big hit singles, three million, four million, five million, even six and seven million copies in the US alone. But they're not interested in learning more about the artist on the record, they'll capture it by the single. What's encouraging is all that I could share with you is what has happened in the last two or three years. Adele, they want that album. They bought over 10 million copies of that album. Mumford and Sons, who I put on at my Grammy party two years ago, they want the Mumford and Sons album. And this year, to make that point, just a few weeks ago, at this party that I tried to impart, not just entertainment, because it's a party, you know, not only the Grammy nominees, but for example, the first six artists that I introduced as MC to show how special this night is and has become the night before the Grammys, the first one I let them know was there, because she doesn't go to many parties, but they got her, got everybody's attention, was Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell is there, this must be a little unique. The second artist who was sitting in the audience was Sting. The third coming from the world of film was Johnny Depp. And then there was Colin Kaepernick, the great San Francisco quarterback from the San Francisco 49ers, and then Magic Johnson and Quincy Jones, just to set the stage. I opened the evening, which I had never done before, with a dance music artist. It was DJ Afrojack. I said, you know, we've got to give credit. They are now filling Madison Square Garden. Let's be open to hear it. Not that they, we want them to dominate, but let's hear where they're developing. The second order, so that people didn't get the wrong idea, is that a matter of personal privilege, I brought on an artist that I signed, to me the best everywhere I've gone in the interviewing 20, intervening 20 or 30 years. If I ran into Mon Abano, if I ran into Michael Stipe, my God, you discovered Patti Smith. So I asked the Patti Smith group to come and play. Forget Grammys, forget that. Just that the all those artists sitting in the front row, they were puffy again every year, whether it's Alicia Keys or Beyonce or Jay-Z or, or Jackson Brown or any of them. I wanted them to see the Patti Smith group. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. And she did Gloria and she did People Have the Power. But then in the new artist, and more directly in answer to your question, there was Miguel, there were the Lumineers, and um, Emily Sandy. And then I had promised the audience that they would see what makes this party so special. Because years ago, when I asked Alicia Keys, what's your dream? She said, my dream, apart from my recording career, is to sing on the same stage with Aretha Franklin. And I put the two of them together. And this night, to me, one of the great, great younger voices, I had duet with an old timer. So I brought, after we paid tribute as an icon to L.A. Reid and had Usher perform the duet that kept them there and made them stay to the end because it was killer, was Jennifer Hudson duetting with Miss Gladys Knight on Herded Through the Grapevine. Believe me, nobody sat down before Gladys then took it to neither one of us a midnight train to Georgia. I go into that because every kind of music is represented there. And 
it's encouraged me that the Lumineers, being in the Mumford and Sons tradition, folk-oriented, Miguel being that interesting combination with showing an important talent. There's room for creative talent. And I think that we're heading in that direction where dance music won't just dominate and that we will have creative artists like Bruno Mars and others emerging from today's scene, hopefully. Uh, thank you so much, um, Mr. Davis, for this insightful talk. I wanted to talk a little bit about Alicia Keys because she is um, an artist that you care, seem to care very deeply about. And I had first met her through one of your publicists, Thomas Martin, before, back in early 2001. And Thomas Martin kept saying, Clive really, really believes in her. She's going to be really, really big. So my question is very simple. What did you see in Alicia Keys? You know, Alicia's great story, and mine, if you will, is that she was signed to a company, major label, Columbia Records, who did not know what to do with her. She had not made any recordings that were released, but they did not hear in her writing songs that would, quote, break her, and they were submitting material to Alicia to record that she had not written, which offended her deeply, with deep resentment. So her manager, with Peter Edge, an A&R man that worked at Arista, brought her to my office, and I really thought it was a joke and on me, and I thought it was a tease. And I write about this. Because in seeing a 17 or 18-year-old Alicia Keys play her music at the piano and to hear her speak this articulate, beautifully expressed young woman, I said, how will you get your release? I mean, it's inconceivable if you're asking me, am I interested? Yes. But how are you going to get off to this day? other than knowing that I had to pay $200,000 and a royalty to get up to five hundred dollars if she sold. That's how somehow they got off. You know, it's a change of administration. And there were different A&R people who wanted to sign their own people and not deal with orders signed from a previous A&R staff. Suffice it to say, other than the drama of how to break Alicia and what happened. And I go into my professionally having to deal with a corporate parent who had a rule that when you turn 60, you got to move out or become a consultant. So I put it right out there, and you'll hear the story of how I said I'm not going to a corporate chairmanship and the drama of that, but they never felt I was going over the hill. And they gave me, frankly, it's all in the book, $150 million to start the largest label ever in history, J Records, with every major executive that was an Arista moving over, with 10 artists, five of whom were new, like Alicia Keys. I bring it up for that reason. She didn't have to come to us at Jay. She came voluntarily. And five platinum orders, that's a big story revealed in the book, where every major executive, so that Jay really was Arista with the new orders roster, including Alicia Keys. And I wrote a letter for the first time in my life because ingenuity never stops. You got to do something different always. And I wrote to Oprah, worried that the song might be not urban enough for urban and too urban for pop. It was Fallen Between the Chairs, that record of Fallen. And I wrote a letter to Oprah, what you do for books and authors, you should do for neo-soul new artists that are coming up. And I suggested that she have a show with Alicia Keys and Jill Scott and India Ree. And she did. 
She asked me if I thought Alicia was great in person. I replied in the affirmative. We flew Alicia out to perform in front of her national advertisers that night. The following Tuesday, Alicia did Fallen, by then Oprah knew every word. The camera went to both of them with Oprah singing along the words. She exploded after the show. The album came out. True story, it entered the charts at number one. And from that, radio finally accepted Fallen in all formats. Alicia Keys, purely and simple, is one of the great young women of the world today in every manner and means. She, her artistry, her creativity is just exemplary. Her respect for history and soul is exemplary. Um, her charity, Keep a Child Alive, is wonderful. Um, and for me, it's the best example of why age doesn't matter if you're healthy, always if you're healthy. Because when I'm with Alicia, as I write in the chapter, age strips away. Because what we have in common far transcends age difference. We love music together. And when she comes out with this brand new album that has brand new day in it and Girl on Fire in it, and we go to a studio and we're listening to music loud and our heads are going as I write in the book up and down together, everything strips away. So thank you for the question on Alicia Keys. Hey, uh, Mr. Davis, Anthony, how are you? Mike Rocket, I'm a singer-songwriter, battling around 10 years in bars in New Jersey, New York, Philly area. First of all, congratulations on your book. It's amazing. I'm very inspired. Uh, a couple lines come to mind, how hard work and tenacity, and sometimes things just land in your lap. If there's a way I can just, the first song on here, I'm dreaming of a better world. I've been working on it for two years, and uh, I'm t if you just listen to the first song, or there's a bunch of others too, you're looking for a new Bruce, I'll try my best. And uh, I, it would mean the world to me. I'm a school teacher, um, but I was born to rock and roll. And uh, if you could check it out. I'm, Is that your real last name or did you adopt it? Um, actually, I, had a, I started with a Bruce tribute band and a, my sax player, the big man guy, said, not Mike Wirtel. Mike Rocket, and um, but also uh, your. So this, ladies and gentlemen, is Mike Rocket. That's it. <laughs> so, uh, but I was also inspired by your lecture uh, a few years back at the Learning Annex, and um, just you know how you're able to just transform things like the Barry Manilow into the amazing things that they are, and um, even if I can't do it on my own, that dreaming of a better world. If you got the right people, I'm telling you, I, I, I had an epiphany, and it would mean so much. Thank you so much. How you doing, Clyde Davis? What do you have advice for upcoming artists? And you're, you're a mogul, and I, I am very inspired by you. And uh, as, as well as, um, what is the feel? You get the feel in the music. What is the feel that says that's the one right there? Well, you know, it's got to be careful in giving advice to those that love show business. I mean, if you're the goods, if you're getting encouragement from real sources who know music, then you pursue it because there are, very few that don't have to overcome some kind of initial rejection. Um, the thing to be careful about is that show business is very seductive and you don't want to waste your life pursuing something if you're really not going to be accomplishing what your mission is way beyond and not paying attention to what the talent that you have and nurturing that. So you've got to really um, keep your wits about you at all time. You know, as Mike Rocket pointed out, hard work, tenacity, belief, and you just keep doing it. Um, and uh, obviously getting encouragement from enough informed sources that it's not just an ideal of yours or, or a dream of yours that you refuse to come to grips with, really. Hi, good evening. My name is Rafael Souza. Congratulations on your book. And uh, my question is actually similar to his. I'm an upcoming performing artist and uh, an entrepreneur in New York. And I'd like to know, other than talent, what would be um, an essential thing for an artist to have in the market and this business um, 
today's business, the music business. And I also have something for you that I'd like to give it to you, the um, CD as well. <laughs> May I? Thank you. Look, whatever's happened with the digital age, whatever's happened with um, word spreading and things going viral, the principles are the same. You're looking for unique talent and you're looking for access to repertoire that's going to bring that talent to the fore. So for me, I look for headliners, whatever the format, whatever the kind of music. And so I was very proud, let's say, to pick one occasion on the 25th anniversary of Arista that whether it was country music, because I go into all the formats. When I didn't buy companies, I started them from scratch, picked executives who could help me in that mission. So whether it was country artists, where we had Alan Jackson and Brooks and Don and Pam Tillis and Brad Paisley, all artists from scratch, all headliners, whether it was in the R&B field, once R&B music changed, it was broadening my sources and going to join up with LA and Babyface and with Puffy so that from me, we had Dion and Aretha and Ray Parker Jr. and Gil Scott Heron and Whitney, but from LA we were able to get TLC and Usher and Outkast and Tony Braxton and eventually from Bad Boy, Biggie and Mace and Puffy and Total and 112. So that you're looking for stars. The idea of my believing, I've had three to sum this up. I personally have three parts of creativity in this unexpected journey that I never knew would be my life, that would be part of my legacy. One of the discoveries that we've mentioned. Two other songs, great believer in copyrights, great believer in songs, so that last month, if I forget your taste, because they're going to vary by everybody here, if Barry Manilow was playing on Broadway, even if you hated him, you would have to admit every song that he sang on Broadway is a standard today. Not just a hit record, that, but what was that song like? You could sing every word of 25 songs in a row. And that's true of Whitney. Whatever the complaint was that she was having hits, the fact that for American Idol or X Factor or The Voice, you don't take on a Whitney Houston song, but the temptation, because they're not just hit songs, their standards today is a major source of uh, satisfaction. And the last is not believing that there's a time limit on the greats, and whether it was re-signing Santana 25 years after his career, seeing great artists peak, but believing that Rod Stewart and the Great American Songbook could extend his career in selling 20 million over the five volume set. Luther Vandross, great, great singer, knowing that there'd be a dance with my father in him, as there was, sadly, that he knew at the end that he had this huge, beautiful record and song. Um, on the years with the Kings, so second time around is so nice with them and keep coming back to Manilow at different parts of his life. Um, so those are the three. The iconic artist, Aretha Dion, believing that they could and then with Santana being a source of inspiration to young musicians as to how long a career can last. The songs that live on for hundreds and hundreds and more in, the, in years because they're copyrights and standards. They weren't just hit records. All the discoveries, you know, so I love bringing Patti Smith back at 67 
and her dazzling everybody in a room full of young artists, you know, or the fact that Springsteen has become the best rock and roll live performer in the world, if not in history. Um, the legacy of Joplin, Hall of Famers, Whitney is one of them. So that sums, that sums it up and I think is a thread in the book as well. Well, I should say that Clive Davis is one of them as well. And um, thank you so much as always uh, you know, for this tremendous insight. Thanks so much for coming, Clive Davis.